Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, those of you who happen to cross our broadcast for the first time, it's our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. We like to throw in uh, some other items for you, prophecy updates, uh, comments on uh, the events of the day, and even the events of tomorrow from a decidedly biblical point of view. If you'd like to explore any or all of those issues with us, hey, jump online with us. Uh, we love to get your questions on the Word of God. In fact, uh, that is pretty much the guiding principle behind our gathering each and every day, answering the questions that are on your heart and on your mind. Joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, if you'd like to join us online, our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com, and note that is spelled C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. The fellowship is with two L's, if you want to know. And if you see the purple bar at the top of the screen through that web page, click on the Watch Live tab. You'll be sent to our streaming page, which is ccf 2 Tucson.online.church. There you'll not only have the chance to engage with us live, but also, and more significantly, send us your questions. On the right-hand side of the screen, you can type in your name and your questions as the broadcast unfolds, and we'll be keeping an eye on it as things progress. Say you're listening to a previously aired broadcast and want to still send us your questions. During every broadcast, we'll make sure at the bottom of the screen to include a banner with our email address which for those listening on Reach Radio is questions, the questions is plural, F-O-R-Hope at gmail.com. You can take advantage of that at any time, as long as it is for the purpose it was created, and that is to receive your Bible questions. As long as they are sincere and in the form of a question, we are more than honored to engage with you on the topics that pertain to the Bible. Note as well, if you want to join us on YouTube, it is a reason for hope. And our Facebook page, uh, they are censoring us again, but we'll still be faithful with the little we have at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like or subscribe to us there, you'll be notified when we are going live. However, things are muted when they aren't supposed to be. Or, of course, if you're put in a position where questions just don't seem to be going through, or even if maybe we're not uh, broadcasting on those particular platforms through no technical fault of our own, we still encourage you to join us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform. There's a lot that we want to catch up on, but we want to make sure that we understand altogether the purpose of the broadcast. Note that we aren't an echo chamber if you are a non-Christian, even an anti-Christian, but are capable of engaging at a respectful level right. and to think through these issues. Yep. No harm, no foul. We'll be happy to address those sincere Bible questions regardless of the one speaking. The substance is in the question. Sincerity means you want to hear the answer. Bible, meaning that the substance of the question leads <laughs> us to the where Bible, we go. Yep. not beyond it, not yep. the question mentions the Bible in some way, but ultimately diverts from what we have there. And, of course, that it is in form, the form of a question. We we make the comedic reference to Jeopardy. You need right. to ask it in the form of a question for it to count for points. Uh, speaking of which, and things that matter, 
We also know that the Holy Spirit's the one who will lead us into all truth, and that's what we want to share here. Absolutely. So before we get into our prophecy update, which we have plenty of to share with you today, we want to make sure that he's the one who's made the top priority in this broadcast. So want to start us off with a word of prayer? I'd love to. Uh, Father, thank you that you're present here with us. Lord, you say where two or more would gather in your name, you'd be there in the midst. What an amazing thing it is that we can uh, literally reach out all around the world and have a fellowship together through your Holy Spirit based upon your word uh, through this avenue that we have of uh, this broadcast. Lord, we pray you take it and minister your word in very special and personal ways. Pray that you would uh, lift Sean and I up to maybe even share uh, parts of your word, passages that uh, we would not have thought of any other way than the leading and guiding of your spirit that are directly on target for the deepest needs of our audience. Lord, it's so wonderful to see how you supernaturally move and honor your word as we make that our foremost focus on this broadcast. Help us to do that. Help us to teach your truth, your whole truth, and nothing but your truth as you give us the help and the power to do so. We ask for that anointing. We ask that you would uh, speak deeply to the hearts of your people. Give us good soil, and let us walk away from this uh, time with a deeper relationship with you than the one we started with. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. All right, so what is going on in the wide world of prophecy today? Well, quite a bit, as a matter of fact. Uh, Some uh, shocking headlines uh, certainly greeted me when I fired up the old interwebs this morning. Uh, None uh, more galvanizing than a headline that pertains to an issue we've been uh, keeping you up to date on as the broadcast has unfolded, the uh, nascent uh, Iranian nuclear uh, weapons project apparently has taken a massive leap forward. On uh, the uh, pjmedia.com website, Uh, Rick Moran writing there with this headline, Iran enriches uranium to 20% with new, more advanced centrifuges. Now, at first blush, that doesn't sound like much. But then uh, the article goes on to say, Iran announced on Sunday that it enriched uranium to 20%, putting it just a few days away from being able to spin up uranium bomb grade levels to 90%. The 20% level is critical because it represents about 90% of the effort needed to ramp up in the enrichment to 90%. So so you don't get lost in all of that. Uh, What it means uh, is this. Uh, The Iranians have had uh, these more and more advanced centrifuges, uh, more and more uh, reinforced uh, uh, places to do their experimentation and so forth. And uh, these centrifuges have gotten their amount of enriched uranium up to 20% in its purity. Well, uh, the moment you get to 20% of purity, uh, it's almost like uh, cresting a hill, if you will. When you start to get over that hill, then uh, going downhill becomes uh, an increasingly uh, rapid uh, experience. And that's what it's talking about here. Literally, Iran is days away from having 90% enriched uranium uh, that they could use to build a number of bombs. But uh, wait, uh, there's other news uh, regarding all of this. Uh, We are told, uh, for instance, that Iran already has enough uranium-235 enriched to 60% to fuel one bomb. Uh, In other words, that 60% would be sufficient to create a nuclear bomb for Iran. Uh, and again, uh, it's uh, very interesting with the 166 
of these advanced centrifuges spinning away, the number that Iran's government claimed yesterday that it has at a place called Fordo, uh, spinning 60% up to uh, 90% is just a matter of days. So, you know, people will ask the question, okay, what about the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the so-called uh, Nuclear Arms Treaty? that the Obama administration was a part of, the Trump administration put on hiatus and slapped back sanctions on Iran, and now the Biden administration has tried to jumpstart. What about all of that? Well, uh, commentators on both sides have pretty much come to the conclusion that all these negotiations were, were, surprise, surprise, a delaying tactic by the Iranians, giving them the opportunity to achieve nuclear breakout. They can do that now within days, which raises a very important question. What is Israel going to do in light of all this? Because understand something, Iran doesn't want nuclear weapons just to, in a sense, uh, enter into like we experienced with the Cold War with the Russians. You might remember the old doctrine of mutually assured destruction. The Russians had their nukes, we had our nukes, and uh, we knew that if they launched, we would launch in return, both nations would be destroyed, and uh, since neither side wanted to die, uh, things were held at a uh, kind of a dicey at points, but an effective standoff over all those years. The only uh, reason that mutually assured destruction doesn't work is that the Iranians, uh, they're mad mullahs that uh, believe uh, ardently in a form of uh, Shiite Islam that uh, is called uh, Twelver Islam. That is, they believe in the coming of a Muslim messiah called the 12th Imam, who will lead the forces of Islam to victory only when the world is in the midst of a global conflagration, if you will. And so uh, the Iranians have no qualms, no problems whatsoever with the dying as martyrs, even back during the uh, Iran-Iraq war of the 80s. Uh, Iraq had superior weapons under Saddam Hussein. Uh, the Iranians didn't have much after the Shah fell, but uh, they would use things like human wave tactics to overwhelm Iraqi positions. Well, why would an individual go running willfully into uh, automatic weapons fire? Well, they would find on the corpses of those individuals after the battles little white keys. And uh, when they interrogated some of the Iranian soldiers, they were told by Iranian mullahs, that these keys represented their key to Islamic paradise, that if they died in jihad, that would guarantee them a place uh, in the paradise with the 72 virgins and maybe their raisins, who knows, depending on your interpretation. But uh, the bottom line is uh, the Iranians have one decided difference from, say, the set-off between us and the Russians in that they would actually like to die to further the aims of their own religion. Their government officials would, not necessarily speaking for the whole nation. That's right. That's right. But the ones running the government are these fanatical Shiite Twelvers, as they are known. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad stood in front of the UN and said that he had a vision of this 12th Imam. He is, some of his followers said that uh, Ahmadinejad at the UN glowed with an eerie green supernatural glow around him. Uh, they really believe that uh, this 12th Imam is uh, ready to come on the scene. So uh, because they believe this, because they actually believe this, and this is really where our State Department has a disconnect, uh, the people running the, our affairs of state and our Defense Department 
will give lip service to religion, but for the most part, they don't really believe it uh, in the sense that they're willing to die for it. They're very much secularists. They very much believe that, uh, just like us, the Iranians want to raise their children, they want to have schools, they want to have a future, and so on. And as you mentioned, Sean, maybe most of the rank-and-file people in Iran might feel that way, but their leaders do not. Isn't that correct? And they're the ones who control the military. Right. So uh, in response to this on Sunday, Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid called on the U.N. to reimpose multilateral sanctions on Iran, uh, a bid that was met with stiff opposition when it was pushed by the Trump administration. Uh, uh, Lapid said the response of the international community must be decisive to return to the U.N. Security Council and activate the sanctions mechanism at full force. Israel, for its part, remains full freedom to act diplomatically and operationally in this fight against Iran's nuclear program. Well, uh, the article on the uh, PJ News uh, media site ends with these words, and I think they're uh, on target. Uh, There's little doubt that Israel will eventually take matters into its own hands. Israel isn't likely to wait for proof that Iran is building a bomb. Instead, the threat from Iran is so immediate and existential that Israel will take out Iran's nuclear infrastructure while hoping to avoid a general Middle East war. Now, that's going to be tough to pull off because the Iranians have ceded the Middle East uh, with, uh, say, uh, puppet uh, guerrilla groups, terrorist organizations like Hezbollah, like Hamas, uh, like the Houthi rebels down to the south of Saudi Arabia. So things are definitely heating up in the Middle East. And to add to the interesting developments there, uh, in two days, our president, Joe Biden, is going to be visiting the Middle East. He's going to be taking a trip to Israel. And uh, there are those who believe that part of Joe Biden's visit to Israel, uh, along with his participation in what's called the I2U2 Forum, you probably haven't heard of that because our news doesn't really cover these things, that is uh, the United States has a uh, forum, a uh, diplomatic arrangement with Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and India. Uh, Biden is also going to visit Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. He is also going to visit uh, the Gulf countries. But the main issue is going to be Iran, said a diplomatic source. Uh, Israel will make it clear there's no point in returning to the deal and that time is running out. Now is the time to get back to the Security Council and to do snapback sanctions. Um, He's likely to hear similar opinions when he goes to Saudi Arabia and his talks uh, with other regional leaders. Now, there's another uh, really interesting development uh, that is coming out of all of this. Uh, Another thing that uh, President uh, Biden is going to encounter is that there are working plans to develop, well, really what amounts to a Middle East version of NATO that is... uh, Countries like Egypt, like Jordan, like Israel, uh, like uh, Saudi Arabia, like the other Gulf states' nations are willing to come together and have an alliance, much like the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And uh, what they're going to be doing is uh, updating Biden on their progress along this line. The main focus of this alliance, which involves the UAE, Egypt, Jordan, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar is uh, to create an air defense network 
that would render, say, Iran using ballistic missiles and their drone technology uh, ineffective in terms of attacking any member of this alliance. And uh, so Benny Gantz, who uh, was the uh, defense minister in the uh, previous Israeli government, uh, looks like Benny Gantz is going to be Benjamin Netanyahu's main rival as far as being able to put together a government and becoming prime minister of Israel. But uh, speaking to Israel's defense establishment uh, earlier this weekend, Gantz said that uh, this alliance known as MEAD, M-E-A-D, the Middle East Air Defense, is meant to connect all of these countries' air defense systems to combat Iran's increasing use of drones and missiles in the Middle East. Unless you think Iran is does not have sophisticated technology along these lines, there was another article that uh, ran uh, on uh, the, uh, the uh, PJ Media News site that spoke of uh, a protest going on by the Ukraine that Iran is now in the business of training and supplying Russia with drones they can use in their war in the Ukraine. Now, that's pretty significant in that we see Iran and, uh, and Russia fully entering into a cooperative military alliance. If you've been with us any length of time on the program, we've talked about the uh, prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 38 that speaks of a Russian-led invasion of Israel in the last days, Uh, That would include, as one of the named nations, being a part of the alliance, Iran, among others. So we see things moving again in that particular direction. So, uh, you know, President Biden is going to go uh, to uh, the Middle East. He is going to be visiting Israel. That could uh, really uh, stir things up as far as some, uh, you know, national issues, the Israeli relationship with the Palestinians and so forth. It'll be very interesting to see what comes out of this. But uh, a guy like Biden, whose uh, poll numbers are now uh, hovering in the low 30s, uh, some have even put them in the high 20s, needs to come back from an event like this with something to show for it, some diplomatic triumph, if you will, to demonstrate competency in his particular regime. So uh, the thing I think that uh, you can look for in all of this is uh, perhaps an announcement of the coming together of that Mead alliance uh, that uh, the Middle East air defense is going to be going online. The United States is going to back that. Uh, perhaps uh, even uh, the final piece of the Abraham Accords, where Saudi Arabia may actually reach out and formalize relations with Israel as far as defense and even trade is concerned, which would be absolutely unprecedented and great PR for this administration. Might happen might not happen. Certainly, uh, Biden is going to try to persuade the Saudis to lower the price of uh, petroleum that they are exporting with the idea of uh, lowering gas prices and dealing with the inflationary crisis that we have here in the United States. Uh, But uh, very important for us to keep our eyes on all that. One of the things that we told you, and we have been telling you uh, on the broadcast, is uh, Israel is in a very uh, dicey position right now. Because as you know, Uh, The uh, previous government uh, has pretty much folded up shop. Yair Lapid is now the acting prime minister of Israel, but he doesn't have the parliamentary backing to be, I guess we would say, an official prime minister. Yair Lapid is also an individual with very little experience as far as defense issues 
are concerned. If you want to read up a little bit more on him, there's some bios uh, that you can look up online at uh, the Jerusalem Post and uh, All Israel News also has some uh, insights into his background. But basically, Yair Lapid uh, was a soap opera star. He then transitioned into becoming a uh, journalist, sort of Israel's equivalent of Oprah, and then he uh, became involved with politics. He has worked in the area of being a minister of finance, but really has very, very little experience as a military leader. So we see Iran looking at the the pieces, the puzzle. The United States, uh, very unpopular president at this particular time. Uh, Israel with a uh, prime minister who's a caretaker uh, who can't put together a coalition in and of himself. Very little experience on defense. It would seem like this would be a golden opportunity for Iran to push for uh, officially uh, putting together and announcing uh, that they have a nuclear bomb, and that is something that Israel absolutely will not tolerate. They will not sit back on their heels and wait around for Iran to use one of its ballistic missiles. Uh, by the way, they write on the outside of these ballistic missiles slogans like "Death to the Little Satan." Uh, that uh, is a reference to Israel. Uh, they're not going to wait around for that to happen. So we may see the Middle East really. Uh, become very active militarily. We may see uh, Israel uh, doing a preemptive strike on Iran's uh, nuclear facilities. We have told you before that Israel and the United States have wargamed all of this out uh, over the Mediterranean Sea up by the area around Cyprus, including uh, cooperation between the Israeli uh, Air Force and the United States Air Force as far as refueling Israeli jets and uh, providing uh, the technology necessary to be able to take out uh, the uh, Iran uh, nuclear facilities. Now, how Russia would respond to all of that, especially in light of their cozy relationship with the Mad Mullahs, how uh, the various terrorist groups would respond to all of that. Uh, As we said, I think we are really setting the stage for what we would call another biblical birth pain. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus spoke of wars and rumors of wars, among other things, being like birth pains, uh, that uh, they would build up in frequency and intensity as the time of Jesus' return draws near. So be praying for the peace of Jerusalem, and if you've got any more questions about what's going on in the Middle East, we'll be happy to answer them. Yes. Now, uh, oh boy, a lot of uh, questions that are basically bringing us to the cusp of blasphemy, but the good news is they're asking questions rather than teaching false doctrine. So why don't we get to and spend as much time as we can clarifying these issues before things get ugly? Uh, the first one is from Isaiah. This and and is, is this, this is on our church website. Yes, uh, several places, our Facebook page, YouTube page, all of these will uh, need to be addressed as quickly and as hopefully clearly as possible. Please let us know if these are clear, because these aren't secondary issues. Um, Isaiah wants to know, in regards to Jesus' human nature, when he says concerning Judas, it would have been better if that man had not been born. And when he says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right. In those words, by the way, and make sure that you clarify that because both of these are quotations. That's important to understand. Right. Was Jesus being vindictive or remorseful or expressing some form of doubt? The first thing, this is 
key in understanding anything about Jesus, Isaiah, the truth statements we need to fall back on in order to test our interpretations, our conclusions, not just the text, but our conclusions with the text is, does that line up with other truth statements that are made in the Bible? If my conclusion interferes or flies in the face of very plain statements that are made elsewhere in Scripture, I have a problem. I need to find a new conclusion. It doesn't mean the text is unclear. It means that I missed something. So remember that. When we're talking about Jesus expressing doubt, now recognize there's a difference between a question and a doubt. A question is looking for an answer. A doubt is the affirmative position there are no answers, and just basically living in that state. It's an attitude, not necessarily a uh, conclusion. People confuse the two. Also note that being vindictive or being vengeful of expressing that form of bitterness towards somebody are both examples of sin, a deviation between our character and God. And as we read in Peter's epistles, Jesus is affirmatively the fulfillment of someone, the only one in history, who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth, referencing the prophet Isaiah. So if that's true about Jesus, then for me to read his statement and assume he was being vindictive, he was being sadistic in his desire for Judas to get his, or if on the cross he had just given up on his faith because he was experiencing so much pain. And while we can't fault him for that, no, we certainly could have. That would have disqualified him completely in his claim to be God. So if that's an inappropriate handling of the text, what is? Well, let's start with the text itself, and hopefully this is again clear. The one about Judas, and I can uh, comment on the one on uh, on Luke 23. Yeah, and both yeah. are, of course, references. In Matthew chapter 26, this is the one that I think clarifies the most details by just reading one verse further. Uh, Jesus is speaking, again, in Matthew 26 and verse 23, after he says, one of you will betray me, it says, they all of them, were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to them, Lord, is it I? Right. So they are understanding Jesus' prediction of a betrayer isn't because one of them was, you know, just a, a double agent this entire time, or, oh my gosh, uh, one of us has to be possessed or something. They were wondering, in light of a prophecy that was made concerning the Messiah, that one of his most trusted companions would be the one to hand him over to the smiters and to the mockers. And he goes on to make the point very clear in regards to prophecy. That's why none of them considered themselves exempt from this. This is God's purpose for the Messiah. No matter what I was doing, there's going to be some like sovereignty switch that's going to make me evil all of a sudden. Notice how he responds to them. He says, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. So Jesus literally, physically, and verbally through contact, through a visual example, verifies the one who was given the position of honor in the Passover Seder ceremony. The, the one most favored that was, person, yeah. Yeah, the one who was dipping in the dish. Now, who yeah. was that? Was that James? Was that Peter? Was it the Apostle John? Was it maybe Matthew, the one who was writing this gospel? No, it was Judas Iscariot. Right. And this is a regular trend that we see in Jesus' treatment of Judas that would make this sort of reference inappropriate. When Judas, 
who had, according to the Gospel of John, been stealing from the money bag, how did he get a hold of it? Jesus entrusted him with it. He gave him the opportunity to right. do the right thing. When Judas betrayed Jesus, how was he addressed? You snake in the grass, you <laughs> slime, you vague reference to some 70s uh, cartoon villain with a twirly mustache. No, he says, friend, why have you come? Now, if I were to assume sarcasm into that, that sounds like me. All of you know and listen to this broadcast at times. I can be smarmy. But when it comes to our Lord, you can be thankful that our Lord is not like me. And that's what we need to be careful of when reading the text, not to assume and read our faults into Jesus' personality. Because the more time you spend with him, the more you're going to realize, I want to be more like him. Not that, oh man, he's just like me. Because if you come to the conclusion Jesus is just like you, you're setting yourselves up as a founder of a cult, essentially. We want to avoid that. Yeah, absolutely. But here's the point that's being made. He says, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Then he goes on in verse 24, the son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him, as it is written of him. Now, where was it written? Well, he just made the quotation. He who dipped his hand with me is the one who raises his foot against me. That's a quote from Psalm 41 and verse 9. So noting then this point, what does he say concerning that man? Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now, obviously we're reading pages or basically words off of a piece of paper. We're looking at the text, and we don't have a uh, commentator. We don't have an audio recording of Jesus' tone of voice, his inflections, his body language. It's easy for us to assume our animus, our anger, our bitterness towards someone we knew from the beginning was going to betray us. (laughs) And Jesus, of course, identifying him as such as early as John chapter 6 and verse 64 That's very early in his earthly ministry. He identified one of them as a devil. Now, was that a point of bitterness? No, it was a point of fact. Because when Judas, who was betraying him, notice he was in the process, and Jesus still gave him the position of honor, answered him and said, Rabbi, is it I? Notice I continued on to verse 25. It says, you have said it. Not get out of here. Not no duh not some other inflection or invection towards him. It was the acknowledgement of reality. Right. So if that's the consistent tone Jesus keeps throughout the entire passage, the follow-up passages right before this verse and the verse that follows after his statement, that man would have been better off not to be born. Is that a statement of Jesus's hatred towards him? Not in the way he immediately goes on to address him. Not in the way he has addressed him throughout his entire life. Not right. in the way he's treated right. him throughout right. his entire life. Sure. That would be an inappropriate handling of the text. But if I take a step back and ask, you know, since Jesus is better than me, I wonder if it's possible that even in the face of someone who hates him, who is literally in the process of betraying him, who is looking for an opportunity for money to hand me over to an unjust trial and the most brutal execution ever devised in history, is he going to treat that person like I would, or is he going to treat that person like he does? Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. When we were his enemies... That's when Christ died for us. That is the kind of love that surpasses any of our capacity. Now, obviously, if you want Jesus to express some sort of 
I even hesitate to say venom, but there is a time and a place for strongly worded correction. You don't go to Matthew 26, you go to Matthew 23. Yeah. And the sort of people that Jesus had words for and choice words for, and, and even being moved with anger, it says in the text regarding his emotional state, towards people weren't those who were fulfilling prophecy. It wasn't even necessarily those who were literally in the, I guess, uh, most unfortunate position due to their choices in a role that was set out from the beginning, that was acknowledged from the beginning. What were the people that Jesus had the strongest words for as far as expressions of anger? Not bitterness, not vindiction, but a genuine just anger, just seeing the sort of block goal. It was the sort of people who are given every reason, every opportunity, every single working knowledge of the truth, and proactively dismissed it. That was, of course, referencing the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and, of course, the people to whom received miracles and then just fell back on their way of doing things anyway. Right. Now, Judas obviously would fit into this category, but in this situation, does Jesus just throw him out by his tails? He grab his unstylish Jewish robe and then make him uh, clean off his sandals on his way out in the midair? No, he says, you've said it. You yeah. know what you're doing. Yeah. And parallel passages even note when Judas Iscariot was inquiring of this, he says, what you're going to do, do it quickly. He doesn't express any sort of follow-up expression of anger. He doesn't lead into this in a state of anger. So I certainly shouldn't assume that Jesus had this lapse in personality where suddenly he was sinful. That is not the sort of handling we should take of our Lord. Now, moving on from unrighteous anger, because Jesus did express anger, did he ever express doubt? After all, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, Wait, those words sound familiar. Yeah, you know, it's funny how oftentimes that will be brought up by individuals, and I think maybe they have good motivation. Say, oh, see how we can all relate to Jesus? Even Jesus had his time of doubt. Well, when they point to Jesus' statement on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They lift that out of the context of what is happening and really out of the context of Scripture because Jesus wasn't, uh, I guess, riffing on his own emotions at that point. He was repeating a prophecy that we find in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 and verse 1 begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? And uh, again, this psalm goes on. You can read it on your own time to describe a set of circumstances that uh, David never experienced personally. Verse 12, we are told, Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. The reference to bulls of Bashan uh, refer to Gentile areas. In other words, uh, this persecution would come from Gentiles. And then it says this, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. These are all physical expressions, descriptions of what a crucifixion victim goes through, the, the uh, dislocation of, uh, of the joints when uh, the, uh, the uh, cross is actually put up and, uh, and placed into a hole with a jolt. Uh, it would dislocate your shoulders and so on. Uh, the idea of being out there in the searing heat 
without any kind of relief and so on. Uh, the idea of exhaustion being a part of the process of crucifixion prophesied here. And then he goes on to say, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing uh, they cast lots. Now, here we see a thousand years before the time of Jesus and 800 years before crucifixion was invented, as a form of execution, King David describing in detail what Jesus went through. So why does Jesus begin with this statement, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, some people can say, well, you know, he was uh, having doubts about his relationship with God. I think we can, we can pretty much uh, exclude that in that uh, his last words uh, before passing away uh, were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, it doesn't seem to be much of a breakdown in relationship there. Some people will say that at that point, coinciding with darkness covering the face of the earth, that uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And because Jesus bore all of our iniquities and the wrath that was due us uh, from God when he died on the cross, the spiritual sufferings, if you will, the eternity's worth of sufferings of going through hell itself was something he was going through. And the worst part of hell is what? Being separated from God. So some people will say that there's something, there's a good case to be made for that. But the, the more that I've taught through this particular passage and, and meditated and studied on the Lord's death, the more I am convinced that Jesus was showing even to his enemies and thought they were getting over on Jesus. They were probably giving each other high fives. They were saying, oh, we finally put this guy in his place. I think what Jesus was doing was jolting these guys' spiritual sensibilities back to the Scripture. Now, remember, if you were a Pharisee of that time, you were a Bible-holic. Uh, you would memorize huge amounts of what we would call the Old Testament. Many Pharisees would have the entire Old Testament, including the Psalms, committed to memory. They didn't have things like the internet, they didn't have things like television, all these other distractions we have today, so they'd work on things like this. Could you imagine what would go through the mind of one of Jesus' enemies when they heard that? They would immediately cycle back to Psalm 22. They would not only think about that prophesied statement, they would take a look at how Jesus was suffering and who was supervising the suffering. They would look at the Roman guards casting lots for his clothing. And uh, they would start to put two and two together. Uh, you see, even at that moment, Jesus was showing that not only God was in control, but he was in control. And this really lines up with an interesting statement that Jesus makes in John chapter 10 and verse 17. He says, no one takes my life, but I lay it down voluntarily. For this I receive my, from my Father, that I may lay down my life and take it back up again, that he would be glorified. So what Jesus was saying there was at any moment of the crucifixion, any moment of his sufferings, he could have ended it. He had the control over all of those things. And so when we see Psalm 22, rather than it being some kind of a, uh, a wailing declaration of disbelief, you have to see it in light of the scripture Jesus was referencing. You have to see it in terms of how those who were looking on, even his enemies who were mocking him, would understand those words and what it would reference them back to. And so once again, I think Jesus was showing these sort of things. Now, if Jesus was just wailing and whining and, oh, I've lost my faith, 
it, you know, here's the kicker for me. Right after he makes these statements, we are told that the two thieves were crucified on each side of him. Uh, one of them was casting aspersions at them. The, the uh, biblical account says both of them were at one point. But then the other one comes to his senses. And he says, don't you even fear God, seeing that we are under uh, this condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the just reward of our deeds. This man's done nothing wrong. Uh, and he looked at Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So here we see a guy who was so impressed with Jesus, that even though he was suffering the searing pain of crucifixion, a torture that is just so over the top, we can't even begin to understand it. Instead of looking at Jesus and going, well, this guy collapsed in a hurry, uh, he saw something more there, something stronger there than just an individual going through a bout of the doubts, if you will. Me, if I'd been crucified, I would have gone through a bout of the doubts, probably. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who was uh, involved with the special forces training uh, for quite some time. And one of the things he told me about was uh, special forces training where they train you as a Green Beret, a special forces officer, uh, as to what uh, your experience would be in a prisoner of war camp. And uh, they, they are very good at simulating uh, what being in a prisoner of war camp is without doing any lasting harm or damage. But, uh, you know, what, what my friend said is uh, everyone who goes into that training goes into that training knowing they're going to crack, knowing they're going to give it up at one point. They train them so that they can hold out for the longest amount of time. They've been captured, and there's a special forces operation going on. Uh, the special forces knows that this person's been captured. It then gives the people who aren't captured enough time to be able to adjust their plans and alter their strategies and so forth. But your whole training isn't to say, no, I'm going to be like John Wayne and never uh, give up. Um, no, they go, you're going to give up. When they start breaking your fingers one by one, you're probably going to give up. Stalag 13 <laughs> is the toughest POW camp in all of Germany. It wasn't like, it isn't like Hogan's Heroes. So uh, the, the, the bottom line is, is this. If Jesus' faith was collapsing like that, uh, why would a Roman centurion of all people at the end of it all, a guy who was all about strength and honor, right? That was what they lived for. Look at him and say, surely this was a righteous man. So the theory that somehow Jesus had lost his faith, was going through a bout of the doubts, doesn't hold up under examination, doesn't hold up under the facts, but it certainly stands up when we take a look at Jesus ministering even to his enemies at that point by drawing them back to a key prophecy of Scripture that foretold Messiah would suffer in precisely the way that Jesus did. All right. Um, boy, so much issue, so little time. Um, question from Keeping It Real in regards to faithfulness and having faith in Jesus. What exactly do we have faith in? What does it mean when we call Jesus faithful? Well, you know, as we've talked about in Psalm 22, uh, we discover that Jesus not only claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, but demonstrated the fact that he was the way, the truth, and the life by his uh, conduct, by his, not only his miraculous deeds, not only by teaching unlike anyone has ever taught before or since, but uh, the fact that morally uh, he even came to his enemies, we are told in the Gospel of John chapter 7, and said, which one of you convicts me of sin? 
<laughs> now, try to imagine what a loaded question that was. That would be like a presidential candidate looking at his opponent in a debate and saying, why wouldn't you vote for me? Well, if they had anything they could have tagged him for as far as violating the law of Moses in word or deed or action, thought, uh, motivation, they would have brought it up right there. The answer, silence. So Jesus was faithful to his father. We see that Jesus was faithful in terms of living what he taught, walking his talk, if you will. And so because of this, and because he presented the ultimate credential of being a valid object for our faith, by dying on that cruel Roman cross, rising from the dead three days later in a moment of history and demonstrating that to the satisfaction of anyone who wants to look into the evidence. We look at that and we go, I can trust this guy on the most important issues of life. And that's what it means to have faith. I right. trust that person based on the reasons he's given. And also it's important to note, and this is how we make sure to preemptively prevent people from dealing with bouts of the doubts, a lot of people trust Jesus to keep promises he never made. A lot of people assume yeah. things of Jesus that he isn't, yeah. <laughs> and that's what we need to be careful for. A working knowledge of Scripture means I'm trusting Jesus on his words, right. not on my perspectives or feelings or denominations of reflections upon him. That's what we want to avoid, setting ourselves up for failure by putting our faith or trusting in the faithfulness of a fake Jesus, because right. he can't be faithful. Right. So make sure that's understood. Uh, Kurt wants to know... Can you explain a little bit better? I'm not sure in reference to what, but we'll try. Uh, what happened possibly when the people came out of the grave when Christ's crucifixion happened? That, that was after his crucifixion, by the way, but we'll note the point. Uh, when did they go home to their eternal destination when Jesus resurrected and ascended? Uh, if you're referring to Matthew 28, uh, I believe, yeah. in reference to yeah. the saints coming out of the graves and appearing to many, there's no reason in the text to think that they weren't in fellowship with Jesus at that point. They were just appearing to people in order to verify an already significant spiritual event. Um, just as a point aside, a lot of people consider this controversial, Matthew 27, excuse me, uh, controversial because the only part of the gospel accounts that mention this in any passing fashion. Right. But that being said, it's a part of the historical document, so take your point. Right. But the point being made in the text is this. This is verse uh, 51. Uh, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. So already something significant has happened. How did Josephus describe that veil? Uh, it was so strong that eight horses tied to it couldn't pull it apart. So when we saw in Passion of the Christ that little shower curtain that was covering the place where the Ark of the Covenant That's was... That's a big new. No, when yeah. the ground split, there was a supernatural tearing. And by the way, top to bottom, there's a significance to that as well. Take Jewish tradition for what it's worth, but that's what the accounts say. Also note, the next verse goes on to say, and the graves were opened. Doesn't mean the tombs are necessarily cracked, though that's a possibility. It notes those were in the graves, many of the bodies of the saints, and those who had fallen asleep, that's a euphemism for death, were raised. Now notice, full stop there for a second. 
the resurrection of the dead, when Jesus physically died on the cross, this is after he had given up his spirit, note verse 50, we start in verse 51, Jesus has physically said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I have the power to give, take up my life, I have the power to lay it down, right? right. So that's been demonstrated. The moment that he died, this is usually where we go to Ephesians chapter 4, where Jesus spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and preached righteousness to those who were in the grave. Right. And so noting this, I guess, piecing together of a lot of different information, Kurt, that's how we would generally approach the text. And I'll finish the passage. It says, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection. So notice there's a time period between verse 52 and 53, that in the 50 days between Jesus' execution, the three days that followed when he appears to his disciples but hadn't yet ascended to the Father, and the, uh, oh, let's say, uh, how many days until Pentecost? Uh, exactly 50. 50. Yeah, yeah. That's the Penta name. Yeah, yeah. Finally ascending to his Father in yeah. heaven. Now, that's a long period of time for resurrection appearances. Some people would read into this passage. No, it was just the saint Jesus that was appearing there, but that doesn't really fit the it's text. Plural. Saints yeah. is referenced it's too plural. many. Yeah. It's not beyond Jesus' capacity to have multiple appearances of even multiple people who benefited from his resurrection. But all of what we're told about in the Gospels is Jesus' appearance to the disciples. Why? Because it's the Gospel of Jesus Christ, not of the fallout and uh, follow-through of everything and everyone he did and interacted with. Yeah. So make yeah. sure that the information we have lines up with the most data. I'm kind of open about the whole issue as far as the significance of the saints' appearing to the disciples or to the others in the city? Well, I think it was really significant uh, in that when we tie it into the massive earthquake, okay, uh, then we tie it into the veil in the temple splitting from top to bottom, mm -hmm. and then we see resurrected saints. There was no more vivid way you could convey to a Jewish audience uh, a foreshadowing of the Messianic kingdom. And that's the whole point of Matthew's gospel, including this detail where the others did not. Mark right. was to a general audience, Luke was to a Gentile audience, John was to a theological right. and, audience. And I guess maybe, Kurt, to put it together, uh, the earthquake would indicate the fact that uh, even uh, the Old Testament saints, looking at prophecies like in Isaiah, saw that there was going to be a shaking of the physical world that was going to take place. Messiah was going to remake uh, this uh, physical world in just that way. And so we see this great earthquake happening. You read through the book of Revelation, lots of earthquakes and a lot of shaking going on. For that uh, reason. You know, then we see the, the splitting of the veil in the temple. And the book of Hebrews talks about the fact that because uh, of what Christ has done, paying the price for our sins, now we have free access to the very holy of holies. We can come before the Lord himself, boldly before his throne of grace, because our sins are atoned for by Jesus. And then that third piece of the puzzle, why have uh, these resurrected saints if you will. Well, it's a tangible, visible way of saying that because the Messianic kingdom has come, because access to the Father has been made possible through the forgiveness of sins, now as well, resurrection, the idea of eternal life, is now available to each and every person. Now, uh, people could hear that proclaimed, but uh, you know what they say, an example is worth 10,000 words. And so rather than trying to rely on the disciples at this point, who were not around to be able to explain things, God, in a sense, through these acts, through these interventions, has shown what Jesus 
has come to accomplish. And so because of that, I believe that what you're dealing with here were a number of individuals that were resurrected in the same way that Jairus' daughter was resurrected, or the widow's son was resurrected, or Lazarus was resurrected. They were resurrected bodily and did come into the city and, you know, I'm back. Uh, but uh, I don't believe that this was just a spiritual apparition. Some people will get confused and say, well, wait a minute, if, if they were resurrected, doesn't that mean they, they went to heaven? No, when we see that in Jesus' ministry, physical resurrection was done to illustrate eternal spiritual truth and principle. We see this happening again there in Matthew chapter 27. In fact, I think it would be kind of odd if uh, in light of uh, the amazing thing that Jesus has accomplished through his death, we didn't see signs like this, you know, that everything just kind of calmed down, that there wasn't uh, something that actually shook the whole universe when the Son of God, God the Son, actually died for the sins of the world. So I think that's what's going on there, Kurt. I hope that, that clarifies that. And, and note how we're handling the text. What supports the most data? If it was a spiritual appearance, then there's things to reconcile with how Matthew's treated resurrections done by Jesus and a fallout of his ministry up until this point. If we say, well, these are kind of just like a cultural um, you know, hyperbole to describe that the resurrection was ultimately accomplished or a future foreshadowing, that seems to diminish what the text plainly says, and I'm not in favor of that unless the other text would justify that. And you know, when people have a a burr in their saddle about this, and a lot of skeptics do, oh yeah, right, all these dead people showed up, Night of the Living Dead, the zombies are out there, you know, the Walking Dead showed up. What does this have to do with the voodoo deity? Well, my, uh, my response to that is this, all right, for sake of argument, Let's assume that Jesus is who he's claiming to be, that he is God in human flesh, that uh, the Bible says that he was in the beginning and that nothing that was created, uh, he created all things and nothing that was created was, wasn't created by him. If, if this same Jesus spoke the entire universe into existence, they're, they're showing uh, the first uh, images from the James Webb telescope that are just absolutely stunning right now that God created the whole universe simply by saying, let there be. Um, Why would it be a stretch for that same God who in the beginning said, let there be light, to uh, come alongside individuals who died and said, resurrect? We see it demonstrated in Jesus' ministry. We just see it happening here to illustrate what Jesus did when he died on the cross. And if this comes up in evangelism, this would just be the parting note on this, because it's a lot of information. Someone would say, well, why don't we have more information about this if it's really history? Well, you don't test what you can't prove or verify. You test what you can. And if you want multiple attestation, I guess that's a, a little... Pringles chips slogan of you, uh, but you can't have just one. If we're given historical information and it's consistent, then you can take it at face value. That's not appropriate if you say, we only have one source, throw it out, it's not reliable. Oh, and the resurrection while you're at it. Um, no, that's not how history works. If yeah. we can verify beyond any fair historical inquiry, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then the fallout events of those things reported by eyewitnesses that have proven fairly reliable up until this point will, of course, be trusted at face value. Now note, we can 
misconstrue or mishandle certain passages, but it doesn't mean the plain text doesn't still say what it says. We may make mistakes, but I don't think Matthew was doing hyperbole here. I don't think it was a spiritual event here. I just try to get to more productive conversations with people if this comes up, because usually it's just taking Bart Ehrman's word for it. Yeah, well, and the other thing that I would add to this is one of the objections comes, okay, well, these people resurrected. You know, why don't we see them mentioned more? You know, why why don't we have, uh, you know, accounts that these people wrote of what it was like to be resurrected and all of this in the Scripture? Well, uh, first of all, because God didn't lead uh, the writers of the Scripture to include detailed accounts of all of this, and for a good reason. In uh, John chapter 21 and verse 23, we're told, and there were also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So not every account is involved there, you know, and in a sense, they're begging the question, if you want to use that, that term in uh, logical fallacies, in that uh, we don't have an account of what happened to Jairus' daughter as she grew up. We don't know what Jesus talked about in the road to Emmaus. We don't know many things we'd love yeah. to hear about. You know, we don't have an account of uh, how the, uh, the uh, widow at Nain's son, how he turned out. We don't even know exactly what happened to Lazarus after his resurrection. All we know is that they wanted, they, to, kill they wanted to kill him, and it seems maybe they did a good job of that. But we don't know. And, uh, you know, rather than, you know, being bummed out about the things we don't know that aren't included in the Word of God, we should really just be paying attention to the things that we do know and ask ourselves that question. Okay, why did a uh, smattering, a, uh, an outpouring of physical resurrections take place? Because the spiritual resurrection Jesus was going to provide was now possible. All right, and then to finish up, a question from Neil. Is it sinful to use irony or mock to convey contempt? It depends on the audience, and it depends on the intent. My attitude in how I communicate towards people is going to differ from person to person, and if they know you well enough to take a joke, or if you're dealing with something serious like false doctrine, then by all means, look at Elijah and the prophets of Baal. But if, on the other hand, it's just uh, reflecting a uh, poor personality of self-control, something I'm certainly guilty of from time to time, or if you're letting that. someone else who's snarky set the temperature of the conversation, stay away from it. Yeah, just make sure that your speech be grace seasoned with salt. Even if the salt is a little heavy. Gosh, yeah. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.